0: Uh, good evening once again for the latest installment of Building the Scottish State. And I have the pleasure to welcome fellow SNP members David Henry and Graham Campbell with me this evening to talk about the conference and the result of many of the elections, especially for the National Executive Committee and whatever else comes up. So first of all, uh, thank you, David and Graham, for being with us this evening. Give us uh, your feel of the conference and what it was like. The format in itself
1: was always going to be problematic in terms of the lack of the members' ability to properly communicate with each other. We did certainly suffer from, although the hopping platform is quite good, it did stop us from really having a motions-based conference. There's some argument about whether we could have had more motions and probably we could have done. As a trade unionist, I'm quite well used to this. If you've ever been to the SDUC Congress, uh, all of their congresses even before COVID were organized in this way and there was designed when you have composited motions, which are basically where you cobble together all the motions together uh, about a similar subject, and you composite them by drafting them all together. Mm-hmm. You get a hodgepodge of stuff. You don't get a specific outcome to the way the thing is discussed. And that tends to water motions. It's a technique that tends to remove radical or off-centre sort of policy ideas and allows basically a sort of common denominator resolution to come through. Now, David had the opinion that these weren't constitutional, but actually what well, they were, but they were just wishy-washy and basically restated policy the SNP already has. In that respect, the conference arrangements committee that voted on them, normally they, they would vote for or against or they'd have an internal ballot to decide which conference resolutions would come up to be discussed. Mm-hmm. So we already have a selection process which vets things politically anyway. <laughs> Instead of doing that, they decided just to cobble together these conference sites. So the, the six themed motions really delivered a lot of amendments which many people did put. So there was some important amendments put into the text, but it was not a satisfactory way of doing this. I hope it's the last time we have to do an online conference.
2: Well, I think my issue and my view of it was it was not come. And that's still my view because no matter what the content of is, there was no way of having confidence expressed whether it really supported it or not. It was a for or against. There was no amendment process, no direct negative process. And there's no, I don't see any reason why that couldn't have been allowed. There was no amendments allowed through from and i actually think we've got to remember whose party it is it's not any of the committee's party it's not the hierarchy It's the members party and i think they felt they were being completely excluded from the process. there was no reason why they couldn't have allowed normal resolution through it might have been a bit more problematic and taken a bit longer certainly my view was and it was actually the, the amount of extra flowery words that was added into it which said nothing at all delivered absolutely nothing there was no point having that last paragraph i mean I'm all in favour of the other than good public discourse, but to have things like love and understanding, all just nonsense. Whoever did write it, and because I know there was a lot of uh, resolutions and a lot of work put in by the branches, I think there was 138 resolutions submitted, which come into just six themes. All the important ones, in my view, were excluded, and that was all the things to do with the running of the party, changing of rules, et cetera, the issues with the constitution. None of that was allowed. That's all been removed. And uh, I understand there was quite a few important ones that were put forward. You don't really uh, help the party or or local democracy if you exclude the membership from the processes. And that's exactly what I think happened at the weekend. And I don't see there was any reason for it. I noticed that the chat service on the right-hand side was not allowed. And I'm pretty certain that was purely just because they didn't want to see what, what the actual delegates had to say. It might be a bit embarrassing. So they switched it off. It wasn't available. So it was very controlled. It's not really a conference at all. It's more like just a rally. And this is the issue: because they were so watered down, they don't actually deliver anything.
1: I would say that if you've been a trade union delegate any time in the last 30 years, this is normal practice. And in fact, the week before, I actually attended a very similarly structured conference, which happened all in one day with six themed motions, comprised in exactly the same sort of way. There was, though, a massive degree of consensus about it. The most important thing the SDC did using that method was in. that they decided that they will defend democracy and they will campaign for the right of the Scottish people to have a referendum. So they've moved a significant way on that because there's a a consensus about it. So nothing wrong with having consensus if there was a broad agreement about something that the chat function could have been enabled. I think that should have been done. Bear in mind, when you say the members, well, actually the members who were elected by the members decided this. They were the ones on the conference arrangements committee who decided this format. They were the ones who put this together. I mean, as I say, I didn't see it until it was published like everybody else. You know, I'm not satisfied with that way of doing things. I'd much rather have had a motion-based conference. It's pretty clear that that format was the first time we tried it. We could have allowed for it. Now we know we can do it. Actually, we could probably do a motion-based conference, but it would be, as you say, would have needed us probably another two days to do it online. Mm -hmm. Given the limitations, I'm reasonably happy with it. But in terms of the debate, you were able to do the direct negative. I've spoke myself in one of the resolutions that I would have moved remit back or an amendment. I couldn't do that.
0: Please tell me about the uh, the results of the NEC elections, and because you were, were or still are on the NEC,
1: I still am. Yeah, I was uh, re-elected uh, as the BAME convener. And one of the problems it sort of shows is that when people join the party, they tick a box to join the various networks in the party, so you can join the trade union group, so on. Now, if you're in the trade union group. The trade union group has the database of all those members. So that's how we know that there are 12,000 members of of the trade union group. And they are able to communicate. The officer who's in charge of the trade union group is able to send them an email. I can't do that with people who have ticked the bank box. Likewise, the people who've done disability. So for the last three, four years in the party, we've been trying to get that right to communicate with our surprising membership I, I spent a year in office on the nec not being able to communicate with the people i'm normally meant to represent that's a problem it's only just now been resolved because we were able to have our agm before the conference that's been a problem of communication so my personal view on this is that BAME representatives should be elected by the people who've ticked that box to be main members. They shouldn't mm-hmm. be elected by the whole of conference. So that's the first thing. So I think conference reflected the fact that it was close because there was a, a division. There are those who believe that the party leadership isn't vigorously campaigning for independence enough, which I think is ridiculous because the SAP is for independence. That's what it's for. There's those who believe that Alex Salmond is hard done by. There are those who believe that Joanne is hard done by. So there are different camps of people who believe those things. I think they're wrong to believe that, but they believe that, and therefore they're organizing around it. There's been a toxic debate around the Gender Recognition Act, which has divided the party quite massively, and which it's impossible to have an open conversation about. You know, and it's happening toxically online, it has been for two years, and instead of the party taking it by the reins and saying, look, let's have debates about this, do it in an adult way, we've allowed it to fester online quite negative ways and it's been allowed to target particular individuals on that executive as if they're responsible for all the ills, uh, Rihanna and Spear, who've been targeted quite nastily in a misogynistic way because there's also been a misconception that equalities people on the executive are somehow responsible for the decisions that the NEC has made that people don't like. Now. In my view, the NEC is only as good as the people who've been elected. And obviously, we've had some different people elected. We still have a, a fairly balanced NEC. I mean, OK, there's some people in there who I don't agree with politically. But I think if we keep ourselves on right, which is we're all there to get independence. And right now, our party is at a very high point of support. Independence is at a high point of support. We need to remember that the prize is... Get a majority in Holyrood in May 2021. Get our legitimate mandate for a referendum that we've already passed laws to make sure that we can hold with or without Westminster. So we've, we've made that preparation so it's possible to do it. We shouldn't get hung up on date or whether we ask for permission or like that. That's not the point. The point is winning the majority of people round to the idea of independence, which we are doing successfully. We mustn't do anything to mess that up
2: right now put my name forward for national secretary and I created my own campaign. I didn't have some big idea. And I tried right at the very beginning, set my stall out. One, I don't get involved in these online factions. And I don't approve of the language, pylons and people basically being quite abusive. Anyone that engages in that, I don't care which side they're on. They should not be allowed to be in the park. And that must stop. We're at at the peak of popularity. We have the ability to win a majority at the next Scottish Parliament. That is what we should all be focused on. I'm really not interested in any of the minority groups and what they're trying to achieve, because you're quite right. Our number one focus should be winning independence and winning a majority. Then after that, the biggest tool in your toolbox going forward politically will be an independent Scotland that has full control over all of its finances, its economy. And then we can pass our own laws and we can become a more progressive nation. I mean, one of the things which I've not heard anybody talk about, why aren't we pushing? We we passed it last year at conference to support an increase in the state pension. I believe that's a a crucial thing and something we should be discussing and pushing the fact that an independent Scotland would be increasing the state pension to the European average. The UK has the worst state pension in the Western world. And we should be reminding everybody of that. Now, the next question then comes, how can you afford it? Well, it's quite easy to demonstrate how you can afford it. So these are the, these are the sort of things I think we should be campaigning on and getting that message out. My, my fear is, I think actually I, I slightly disagree with Graham. I think we should be focusing on a date. My big concern is in everything in life, there's a window of opportunity. I predicted this horrible situation that we're in with Boris as a majority and being dragged out of Brexit. I also predicted that the powers would be stripped from the Scottish Parliament. I said that last December, I raised it, just before the election, uh, with one of our government ministers in a branch meeting that I went to. And I said, what's the plan if Boris gets a majority, he uses some form of state of emergence, and he closes down the Scottish Parliament? What are you going to do? And the shocking thing was, it had never crossed anybody's mind that any such thing like that could ever happen. That tells me there's not much strategic thinking going on because you should always, I think, be ready for the, the unknown. Going back to the way the conference was run, I disagree. I think it was completely stage managed and I think it switches off the membership. And it follows a long path last year's Aberdeen Conference. There's some great people in the party at the Broad Church. This is all very, very good and positive. And yet we've allowed the party over the last two years to be hijacked by minority interests who, on public forums, are damaging our brand and our image and don't seem to be talking about independence at all. They're talking about all sorts of other things. So I think that's been a a real uh, miss. Now, I think it's basically because we've been drifting along a bit, we didn't really know what was going to happen with Brexit. I think we should have called independence already. We should have had it now, before the 1st of January. That's my view. and We would have won it. Now, we're, we're at the mercy of the UK government. And last year's conference was also extremely stage managed. Nothing really significant got onto the floor. There wasn't really any major things that, I, that got me excited. And I, and I look at what happened back in 2017. I got involved and made one speech, which was to help raise the minimum age of recruitment in the armed forces. That was a YSI um, resolution, I believe. It. And I did a bit of research and I got annoyed enough to put my name forward because other people were saying, they should reject it, etc. That was something that was exciting. There was, and we took a risk. That was a risk. I remember people afterwards, some people were not happy, um, and told me that we, it could damage us politically, and because we'd be seen to be anti-armed forces, which of course we're not. I think we need to get back to that sort of thing. I mean, I think we're getting far too timid, this idea of watering them down and mixing them all together, and you end up coming out with something that doesn't really say anything. I really think we need to get back to creating real policy. And I would like going forward. And I think this is an opportunity now with this major change in all the different committees. I think it's a breath of fresh air. I think we must start engaging with our membership. The membership is basically effectively cut out of these decisions. Every time we come up with another committee and we've got another, it's another filter. And so less and less of what people at the ground level grassroots actually believe in get from party policy. I think going forward, conference committees should produce half of the resolutions and the other half should be voted on by the branches. And it should be them that make the decision. Instead of it all going through a very select few hands, you've got to look at it, 100,000 members, then down to about 250, 300 branches. Then it's down to so many CAs. Then it's down to the NEC's got 42 on it. Your conference committee's only six or seven people up. This is condensing further and further down. Every time you go down that route, less and less of what people actually want is being taken up. I think we have to just look back
1: a bit. Two years ago, we introduced a new constitution after having had a two-year discussion about it to talk about the mass influx we'd had into the party post-14, right? I only joined the party in 2016, but I've been coming to the conference since 2011. So I've seen the evolution of the party over that time. Noticing the change that's happened, of course. It's the biggest changes that most of the activists in the party have grassroots are actually post-2014 members, you know, like myself. So that's the biggest change. So first of all, we're more working class party for a start. If you look at who's been elected to the leadership bodies since then, it reflects the central belt and the urban areas much more. SMB used to be a very northeast of Scotland rural dominated leadership. It's not now. That's a good thing, in my view, because it represents more of the mass of the people of Scotland. But the downside of it is that we got so big that we didn't have a structure that could manage uh, and involve those people. So we changed the constitution in in 2018 to allow for regional conferences and regional committee structures, so the people in their local area, because you know that most People can't make a party conference if it's in Aberdeen, mm-hmm. if they live in the Central Belt or in the South, uh, or if they're from Shetland, happen to come to Glasgow. You know, but they might be able to go to a regional conference. And unfortunately, COVID nineteen, at least last year, has stopped us being able to actually bring these structures into being, so that you could go to your regional AGM, discuss policy in more detail with activists that you can see face to face. We've been prevented from bringing about the new structure that we voted for. Uh, So that's the third thing. We are lacking that because we've been unable to implement this new structure. It's not that we don't have a structure. So it's put too much pressure on the NEC to to, to make things happen, which they can't make happen without actual meetings. Uh, We've had national assemblies, and we saw that with the, the way that the Growth Commission process was handled. We had some actually quite good National Assembly discussions. We only were listened to, finally, when on the currency question, because activists like ourselves put opposition to the currency position and amended it, and the amendment was accepted by the leadership. So it's not true we haven't made policy. We passed the Scottish National Infrastructure Company that started with a common wheel idea Members like myself went round to branches to argue that case. Branches supported it, and we won it overwhelmingly. So it's not true that we haven't passed really important policies that will be existing afterwards, But we need to do more of it by making the regional structures actually work. It's not the size of the NEC that matters. Frankly, you know, I've been in Zoom meetings with five hundred people. You know, you can, it's not a problem. Of the size. It's a question of whether the decisions that that body has made are communicated properly out to the membership. One thing I would agree with everybody who's criticized this is that because we are in a covenant, you know, basically we, we've got essentially a silence fail. I can't tell you how different people voted on this or the other. I think political minutes of the meeting should be made available to members Mm -hmm. so that you can politically judge how someone has voted. At the moment, you can't do that because there's no Mm -hmm. public way of doing that. So there's certainly an agreement on the NEC that we need to be better at communicating these decisions so that people know why we have done something. A lot of misinformation has gone on and Frankly, it lies have been told about what has gone on on that (laughs) committee, which have misinformed the discussion about what the thing does. Uh, You know, I have to say, my frustration as an NEC member has been often our inability to actually do things. You know, there should be a specific date and time that you know the NEC is going to meet so you can put resolutions to it or, or prepare to lobby it. You know, you, as a member, you should be able to do that. So that's been a frustration of mine. And so one of the key things that we asked for is to make sure there's a regular date of the meeting so that members know when it meets. And a short, pricey minute of the meeting that you know what decisions were made is given to members. That, that should be reported back. So that's the, a basic reform which would be good for communication's sake. I would expect that to happen. But in terms of the, the new people who are on it, some of the new people on it are, are going to be hard work. People have reacted to the, the, the lack of interaction between the NEC and the membership by not a constructive way. There's some people there who are not going to be conducive to uh, working together, quite frankly. And, uh, and, uh, it's going to be a struggle. And as for what David said about other issues, my reading what you're saying is that there are many people in the party who think that equality's issues are somehow marginal or sidetracking from the question of independence. I don't think so because the majority of the population come from those marginalized sections of the population. So if you want to win a majority, we have to have something that's for women. We have to have something that relates to black and, disa- and disabled and minority groups as well. We have to have a, a perspective on independence, which is clearly in their interest, because that's the majority of the population. I always say that about working class people. Unless there's a, an, an economic program which relates to working class people's interests, that's clearly right. If I vote for that, I get public mm-hmm. services. I get universal basic income. I work for a society that's going to serve my interests. That's how we get a majority.
2: It's not either or. We can do both and we have to do both. That's not really what, what I was actually aiming at at all. My, my view on, and this, is, this was the clean campaign, and, uh, which was aimed at four simple things, and equality is, is central to my belief, absolutely central. I didn't sign up to the Women's Pledge, and I didn't sign to the, the trans rights lobby group either. And I didn't sign either of them for a very simple reason, uh, one, I don't think should be beholding to any group, because if you are, or if you have signed up to anything like that, then if you're meant to be impartial uh, and you're meant to make decisions, on, for instance, on complaints, procedures, etc., people perceive you to be linked more to one than the other, then they're never going to believe that you're actually impartial. But my feeling is setting aside the different groups that are trying to achieve different things. I believe equality for all. You've touched on something which so far hasn't been made party policy. And it struck me that it's quite clear that there are barriers to entry for women and from ethnic minorities and people with disabilities. There clearly is. But there's also barriers to entry from people from lower working class, from state education rather than private education. And that's why I come back to, if you look at the higher level, that we need to get equality firmly embedded that this is what we believe in. And this is what we're going to do. Simple things. I heard a really good idea from, I think it's the Leith branch in Edinburgh. This is before COVID-19. And on, I think once a month on a Saturday, they had a women's political cafe morning, which also had an ability for them to bring young kids and they were looked after them. And the women just sat down and talked about what was the important issue of the day. And that is totally different to the way my branch, for instance, meets on a Thursday night at 7.30, usually in a hall. We a a, a woman member, she always had to make arrangements with her husband so that he was going to be home to look after the kids so that she could come to our meeting. And one of the things that uh, Graham mentioned earlier, what I see going forward, and I hope, let's have the next conference, not only in real life after we've all had our injections, but let's have it online as well. Let people sit at home and and be part of this process rather than you're quite right. And I've, I've raised this issue myself. Uh, the last conference up in Aberdeen, it was a total waste of money and a waste of time. We didn't have a three day conference, even though it was spread over three days. We had a one day conference spread over three days. And that's why I don't like what we did this time. I, I, I want the meat. I want people to have the debate. So we actually agree on a lot more, I think, than um, I just don't get involved in the different camps. I stay above it all and say, here's the principle. The principle is equality for everybody. And the other thing that I want to reinforce. For anyone watching, you must show respect to each other. It is turning into a bun fight in public. It's going to be very damaging. And this is the sort of thing that the Labour Party's done in the past. And they ripped their own party to pieces. We must avoid that. You're right. We've got an opportunity to deliver independence. So let's, if I can say anything, let's focus on that and let, let's get on with it. What do you see as the main cleavages at this point? That, uh, how do you think they could be overcome? Well, clearly, uh, both Alex Salmon and Nicholas Sturgeon are major political forces. I happen to support both of them. When I was asked before the court case what my view was on the Alex Salmon situation, and I says, well, I believe everyone's innocent for proven guilty, so I'll reserve my judgment for the end of the case. And of course, the newspapers had an absolute field day with it. Massive and massive, I mean, just unbelievably biased coverage. Lots of juicy innuendo and all sorts of things when it was prosecution. When it came to the defence, there was virtually no coverage at all. Hardly anything was mentioned. At the time, I was running a local pub. I'd stopped running it in March this year. I'll tell you what, it's a great microcosm of, of society. And they've all, they're all very opinionated. We used to have newspapers for people to read, and the sun and all that were there. Anyway, they'd, all, they'd delight in telling me, oh, look at this. Oh, he must be guilty. He must be this. Look at all of that. I went, this tabloid newspaper. You take it with a pinch of salt. You know, they love, they love a good headline. So where do we go from here with the enclaves? I think it's not healthy to go down this route, or even talking about it. Let's pull together. Remember, we should be respecting each other. Stick to the rules of membership. And let's get back campaigning as one team and delivering.
1: We all know can be delivered. The key thing for the party in terms of the strategy for independence, right, We have already set the precedent of having uh, had a, a recognized referendum. The reason for that was not because we needed to be recognized by bloody Westminster. It's actually to be recognized internationally by the European nations, especially. We need to have a referendum that's legally solid in order to be recognized by them. Now, prior to Brexit happening, that was a more difficult question. But now with Brexit happening, European nations are much more likely to support our votes, regardless of how it happens, actually. I I actually think. But the the key point about the the timing is that we would have had it, I believe, this autumn, had we not had COVID, because that was clearly, from my understanding of the the strategy, was the clear intent that we would have it this autumn. And indeed, the, the expression that Ian that for himself said, which was slightly backed off from, but he felt that it should be in autumn 2021. Now, I think it should be in autumn 2021. After we will have a mandate for it, we should just hold it in autumn 2021 because that's my preferred timing. But I wouldn't, I'm not copper fastened to that timing. Timing to me is less important than. Will it be recognised by our European partners? Because that's the key point question. It's, it's the people who get caught up on whether we should have a majority vote in the to do it. UDI. Oh. It's actually not how we declare it. It's who it's recognized by that matters. That's the point. What's their yardstick for recognizing our vote? Now, our European partners have a a directly vested interest. They now don't have to give a damn what Britain thinks before they did. Now they don't have to. So they have every reason to recognize our vote however we do it, as long as it's legal by our processes, which is why it's so important that we passed all this legislation this year to make it possible for us to control the referendum. If that's not preparing to do this. I don't know what it is. So the people who are impatient, well, look what we're actually trying to do. We're actually making it possible for us to have a legally authentic referendum, whether it's recognised by Westminster or not. Ideally, I prefer it to be recognised by Westminster so for this reason only. If we saw as in Catalonia, where no voters just didn't turn out to vote, we need one where no voters will turn up to vote and recognise the legitimacy of the vote. If we just have yes voters turning up, even if we have a majority of the electorate voting in it. If no voters don't validate our vote in the eyes of many of, of our potential friends and partners, who might recognise it otherwise, I think if we get a recognised vote that no voters will participate in, then there will be no dispute about the result. And that's what I want. I want, if it's possible, to have a legal vote which is no, not disputable. I prefer that. We're pursuing a strategy that's Plan A. Now, Plan B. Everybody, I can understand why what people want Plan B, but in a way. We don't need to
2: tell our enemies what our, our strategy is, too overtly. That's, that's just my thing. The next election could be used uh, as a plebiscite, and I've heard people say this. Yes. If there's a clear majority for the SNP and maybe the Greens and any other party for that matter, that in their manifesto their key thing is to deliver independence and that they get the clear majority of the vote, then the people have decided, and actually having a referendum is really just uh, to confirm what's already been decided. So I think there's a lot of people that seem to hold that view, and it does seem to be quite widely supported. So perhaps that's what we should be fighting on and pushing our party to put into the manifesto, which is if you vote SMP in May 2021, you have voted for independence. And if we get 60% of the vote because we're in the polls, not far from that at the moment, and 58% I saw, then we voted for independence. I attended uh, an Irish politician's talk a couple of weeks ago. It was very interesting. My MP, Joanna Cherry, was speaking on it, which is how I found out about it. And, and two things came out of that. One was Spain isn't interested anymore, hasn't got any uh, things against Scotland in, in the EU. And the EU itself owes the UK absolutely no allegiance because the UK is no longer a member state of the EU. We have actually elected. I think there's huge support. And and this chap was saying that the Irish government will be one of the first European nations to sponsor Scotland's application in the EU. Things have changed. Brexit has changed, I think, everything. It certainly changed everything from my point of view. must thank David Cameron for um, being (laughs) such an incompetent prime minister and making such unbelievable risks and taking risks. Because even in England, if you were to run the same poll again, for on Brexit, you'd now find its remain. People now see it. It was a folly. It was a very close-run thing anyway. Um, and you can't really have a United Kingdom which had four nations in that vote, because it's not the British people. It was four nations as the United Kingdom that's a member of the European Union, not Britain. Britain isn't a member. It's the United Kingdom that's a member. And two members of the United Kingdom voted to remain in the EU. Well, the logical Answer to that is you let the two that wanted to leave leave and the other two stay as member states of the EU. And we could have taken over the UK's membership and just had it ad- adapted, the successor state. So I don't think it's going to be a, a, an issue for Scotland to join the EU at all. I think that will be quite a simple process. When it comes to recognition, I would ask people to go back and remember that in 1959, the UK state was campaigning in Malta. Telling the Maltese that they couldn't possibly survive on their own, they wouldn't—they were going to starve because they'd only have twenty-five percent of their food. They couldn't defend themselves. What currency were they going to use? This all starts to sound very familiar. <laughs> and in 1965, the tiny little country of Malta voted for independence and left the UK, and which are now a member of the EU. So, there and, and so if a country the size of what is it—the Isle of Wight. Uh, can become an independent country and thrive in the EU, then I think you'll find a country like Scotland, which has slightly more population than Ireland, has its own oil, gas and renewable energies, produces enough food to feed itself and exports more than it imports, and pretty certain we can be a very successful member of the EU. I'm looking forward to the ferries going from Rosseille to Holland multiple times a day.
1: That was in the resolution, David.
2: <laughs> oh, well, I missed that one.
1: <laughs> it was one of the key points they spoke about. So, so actually, it was, there was one useful bit of policy that you agree with.
2: <laughs> well, I, I didn't say I dis- disagreed with him. Mean, I got a talk, I, I got asked to speak again, as a speaker again. Obviously, I thought.
1: I know what you mean, though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, there I should have been a possibility against, to amend things. Well, and let, let and that's it. all.
2: I would, have, I would have proposed an amendment and to make it an absolute date and an absolute commitment, etc. And That's what I would have been proposing. So I I don't have an issue with that. Funny enough, I've been banging on about the the ferry link because I've done a lot of travel. I used to live in London, and I've done a lot of travel from Dover to Cali. And I've done the Geneva Motor Show for about eight or nine years in a row. So I can give you a little insight of what Brexit Britain is going to be like starting in a couple of weeks' time. I took a whole van of stuff for the Geneva Motor Show, the biggest van you can get. Uh, I had to have a customs agent in Dover. I had to pay them fees. I had to fill out all these forms and have all these codes for every damn product that was on the van, including the sheets of pieces of wood that I was taking to help build the stand. all this all had to be listed. You have to come up with a code of what type of material that you're taking that's fine, so you, you get all that and then you have to go through h m customs and you have to wait to be called in so this takes hours hours of time wasted. Then when you do that, you've gone through all that, then you get your sheet it's been stamped. you can now go into the Dover port. Now you can get on to the next ferry to get across the channel. Then when you're in France, that's all fine. Uh, you get up to Geneva. Then you've got another border. Oh, God. The other border where if you don't have your paperwork uh, and you can get there at the wrong time, they close at lunchtime for two hours. Uh, they're shut on a Sunday. And they're only open half a day on a Saturday. And if you get there at the wrong time and you've not got the right paperwork, you'll be stuck at the border for two days. And you have to have an agent as well. And this will cost you hundreds of pounds uh, for your agent to fill out pieces of paper. And this is what Britain has voted for. This is what Brexit means. And when I came back, this is last year, I had to wait half a day because the agent was waiting on their their customs people, pay the hundreds of uh, euros in fees so I could leave the country and finally start driving back through France to get back to Dover, then to go through the same process again. Uh, So Brexit will be a disaster. Brexit is a, a massive step backwards. Scotland can do so much better. We must have our own trade routes. We must. And people talk about war, about what about a hard border? Isn't that what Britain voted for? Put up borders between us and the EU. I think I don't see a problem having a border with England at all. The one thing I liked about driving across Europe is the borders are invisible in most of the countries. I've done it before. I've driven um, from London to Dover and Dover to Calais, and Cali through to, that usually was Dunkirk. So a bit of France, then Belgium, then a little bit of Holland and then Germany and then all the way back again, all in one day just to get a contract signed in case the courier lost it. So It was, it was very important. Um, so I did it all in one day and I, I remember coming back thinking, I've just whizzed through four countries, backwards and forwards in one day and then I'm back in England. And guess where the border was that I had to go to customs? It was in England. They wanted to, they wanted to check what, where had I been, what had I been doing? And I said, what, what's in the fuck folder? And I went, well, it's a contract. They wanted to see the contract. I went, You're not really allowed to do this. You know that, don't you? Uh, <laughs> but anyway, there you go. That's what it was. Oh, right. Um, and, and I had a tiny little car on hire, the smallest car you can get, a Citroen C1 thing. And they said, have you got any hidden passengers? Which I couldn't stop laughing. I went, "Well, if you can find somewhere to hide someone in this tiny little car, go ahead, have a look." All the to put him in the tank. Well, yeah, unless you can, unless they're holding underneath the car. There's there was not a boot. There's nothing. It was just ridiculous. Anyway, I've diversed a little, but Brexit Britain. I must thank Boris. I must thank Nigel Farage for their narrow-mindedness because Scotland, Scotland voted against what they've done. We don't have to put up with it, and we're leaving, and we're rejoining the, the world. And I tell you what, that's the other thing I think that's changed massively. Um, we've now got rid of Trump. My God, thank God. However, 70 million people voted for him. And there's a warning. And I tell you what, it brings me back to my little campaign, respect uh, equality for all it's extremely important that the tone of debate in public is set from the people at the top. And so we might have disagreements on certain things, and, and that, that certainly does happen. I don't have the same priorities as some other people. However, if we if we stick to being respectful, um, I think we're all we all benefit from it.
1: I would agree with that, David. But I have to say that uh, some of the people who have been campaigning for, against various people, including against me, have not been respectful, and in fact, have utterly distorted the the debate that, that should be happening. I'm afraid that that's an example of this, is in this chat just here. I mean, somebody's quite rightly commanded you for talking about pensions. Uh, mm. but of course pensions were a key ingredient of the campaign in December twenty nineteen. Indeed, and who got elected here in Glasgow mm. Northeast has been leading on this very subject mm. and led it in that election. So it's not true that the party put it on the back burner in my view, but you actually had it out front as a major issue in the election campaign, no, which uh, was uh, successfully in winning a lot of support from the older generation. But it has to be said that when you say things like you put this on you're putting pensions on the back burner in favor of minority groups. Well, sorry pensioners include women black people and minority ethnic people and even some trans people they uh, you uh, know pensioners are not a monocultural group pensioners are a broad group and we should just understand that equality justice is a thread that runs through all policy which will you know, if, if we do something right by pensioners, if we do something right by women, we're actually helping other communities as well while we're doing that. It's not an either-or. It's inclusive of these things.
2: And we I, stop seeing it as a divisive agenda. It's a connected, intersected agenda. I think my take, my take on that, Graham, though, I've seen, seen the note. And I don't take it quite so negatively. I think uh, I voted for that resolution, by the way, you know, the, uh, increasing the pensions. And I put in our speech card for it, but I didn't get picked because, and I'd researched, how can we, because it's all very well coming up with, uh, and and I see this in the Labour Party, they come up with some great ideas sometimes, and they've never actually priced it and costed how they're going to afford it. So so I had, I'd done a bit of research. What would we do? What would we be saving once we're independent? So I worked it out very quickly. Uh, We wouldn't be spending 3.5 billion pounds a year on defence. Spending, of which only £1 billion is spent in, the, in Scotland, so £2.5 billion is spent actually elsewhere in the UK. So that would be one saving. We wouldn't be spending and contributing to things like HS2, which they claim is going to benefit Scotland, which it clearly isn't. It stopped at Birmingham. And I don't see how getting to Birmingham 20 minutes quicker actually is much of a benefit, to be perfectly honest. Ah, uh, cross rail across London apparently is a national infrastructure and that benefits people in Scotland. It certainly does not. So I think all those things we wouldn't be spending on, and I worked it out that it was about nine billion a year, and then I worked out how much uh, they raised the uh, pension on pensioners in Scotland up to about the two two hundred and fifty three hundred pounds a week, which is about the average across the EU. And it turned out you could afford it from those savings. Oh, and the other thing we wouldn't be paying, we wouldn't be paying three billion a year uh, in debt interest on the UK's debt mountain, which continues to grow to two plus trillion pounds. But what was important, I never got the chance to say that, is so we passed that resolution, which I fully supported, but nobody got up on the stage to put that, those arguments forward. How can you afford it? Because that's obviously what your opposition is going to come and attack you on uh, how are you going to be able to afford it? You've already got a deficit, et cetera. We don't have a deficit. GERs figures are an estimate. Yes. <laughs> they're, not, they're not... are a lie, <laughs> basically. Well, <laughs> they're, they're, they're an estimate. They're not... I wouldn't, I wouldn't go down and use that word. Well, they were deliberately, um, they're an estimate
1: deliberately designed to mislead because, of course, they don't take into account all the assets and the economic base of the country in the plus column against it, there's, the there's, taxation and liability.
2: There's a, a very useful... There used to be a very useful amount of data released by HMRC. And it would do go through the quarters. So there was a quarterly import-export, basically GDP. But import-export uh, data was produced every quarter. And it was detailed for the whole of the UK and the different regions, etc. And Scotland, every single time, exports more than the imports. And I'm, uh, I can read a set of accounts. I'm not an accountant. But if somebody's selling more than they're buying, then they're, they're making a surplus. Scotland makes a profit. This explains why they don't want us to leave.
1: Yes, we are the third richest region of the UK after London and the South East. Of course they don't want us to go.
2: Yeah, I don't take uh, that on board, saying it's that negative about that. That's the point I wanted to make. Uh, We're not pushing that great pension thing. I think that should be part, I think it should be our next for the campaign, certainly for the Yes campaign. It should be a major part of the campaign and an independent Scotland that the Scottish state pension is going to be in line with the EU. Average, it will go up from £168 a week to approximately £300. It can be afforded for by, we won't be paying for this, 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 and this. Here's the numbers. Really simple message. Anyone can understand that. I I take what, what the person was saying there, that we're not pushing it. Yes, we've passed it. Yes, it's policy. But we're not selling it to anybody. Well, I, I'm certainly sure that it will
1: be a major element because obviously last time we lost the referendum because a significant majority mm. of pensioner-age people did not vote for us. Uh, but this time, I think that that is shifting, partly because... This last year, they spent a lot more time with the younger generations in their family. Uh, and I think as well, they've seen the negative results of the last five years since we didn't vote yes. So, you know, they can now see that the economically insecure route is to stay in the UK, because that's the surefire way of staying in pension of poverty. So, uh, you yeah, know, I think we we can win a majority of pensioners this time. I, yeah, I that's think- one of the messages we, we're going to need to use to, to bring them across to us. I think there's
2: one other thing, um, one other thing that's changed, is uh, in 2014, uh, approximately a quarter of a million European citizens uh, that live in Scotland, that's their home, you know, they, um, they voted no. The majority of them voted no because the, the threat to them was, well, if you vote yes, you're leaving the EU because the UK is the member of the EU. It's completely now the other way around. And those quarter of a million will now be voting yes, because we're going to rejoin the EU. Um, so I think there's two bits, that not only that, that the age the age demographic has changed. There's been new waves of new people joined in the last six years. We've now got voting age. They weren't able to vote before. Uh, it's sad to say that uh, and COVID-19 certainly highlighted this as well, is that uh, far too many of our older generation have passed away. I had, I had a member uh, of my branch die. Um, just over a month ago, which I found out, um, which is a great pity because he was—he was a lovely man—and used to come and do polling duty and that. And I found by accident, uh, so it felt like a member of the family had passed away. You know, um, so I sent my regards, and in fact, our whole branch sent our uh, condolences, etc. And that's happened, I'm afraid, too many times. I know, I know, at least one or two others as well. So, just demographic age uh, shifts. I think the other thing, and this is uh, Graham as well, I'm will probably agree with me on this, uh, we've identified a major uh, thing going forward for the party is we've got to get our post people on postal vote because in Edinburgh, we are quite, this part, part of Edinburgh, a large part of it, it's quite a Conservative area. The Conservatives have, I think it was 37% on postal vote. We've got 24%. If the weather's bad on the 5th of May, our vote doesn't turn out because it's raining. Uh, whereas theirs does because it's been posted, we must get our postal vote average up uh, because it will it will help us when when seats. I have to say that what scope is there for having, for example, electronic
0: voting or uh, you know blockchain voting within you know for for the Holyrood? ones. I don't know if it's something that could happen. Zero.
1: <laughs> Zero. Uh, we'll be voting by post or in person. Um, COVID restrictions, if we have another outbreak, then it's possible it will be all uh, posted. And so mm-hmm. David's quite right. We're going to also have to probably have a massive campaign uh, to, to register people to vote. Because yeah. the other thing as well is that the, I know Edinburgh well enough to know that actually the, the areas like yours where there's be part the constituency where the turnout is ridiculously low but the support yeah. for the SOP who turn out 70% it makes that we win the vote but it's yeah. too many, many people are not registered to vote so we're going to have to mass register people to vote in the first place and that's particularly true of BAME communities because many people from EU or from Africa or Asia don't know that they can vote in the election, Uh, so many of them are not registered for that reason. So we need to go on a mass registration drive to bring those people, particularly in SNP supporting areas, working class people who've been disenfranchised. Like we did in the referendum, we brought many people
2: to voting uh,
1: because of that. So we need to do that
2: again, majorly. Okay, I totally agree. In in the European election, which I'm organizer for the constituency, so it was the first election that I had to basically <laughs> deliver myself or or help arrange um, because I, uh, I that was the first time of being an organizer to help deliver it. And we had identified during the council elections that there was a lot of Polish community in places like Westerhills, etc. And we found out that either they were totally disengaged, so they didn't even know there was an election coming, <laughs> um, or they weren't registered at all, and they didn't know that they actually had a vote. So in the EU election, I brought up at a meeting and uh, brought the three branches together, and we had representatives from all the branches. And I th- said, you know, we should, we should uh, concentrate on trying to get the Polish community uh, uh, to make sure that they're going to vote in this EU election after all they're EU citizens. And that's when I discovered that, of course, the UK government meant they had to sign another declaration. So there was another form that they had to have signed, otherwise they weren't going to get the vote. And it wasn't available online, and they didn't make it easy to find. So I actually got uh, one from uh, the Electoral Commission's office in Edinburgh, and we went to the printers, and we got hundreds of them printed. And when we stuck them all in envelopes, along with our material and our letter, into European supermarkets in our area, and they put them on their shelves, along with our posters, uh, telling them to help us keep Scotland in Europe, in Polish. and I went back after the thing, and they were all gone. All the forms have been taken. We know it worked, uh, that people signed them. People, summoned, people even signed up to, to vote. They hadn't registered to vote. So I totally agree. We need to do it again, uh, and we need to go around these areas and get, get our people switched on. But then they're only going to vote if there's something for them to vote for. Absolutely.
1: We and did we- the same in Glasgow Northeast, by the way, with uh, the Chinese community and with uh, the Nigerian, and the, Af- you know, the West African communities here. Uh, we, we targeted them specifically, and the response we got back from the Chinese community was we were the first yeah. to actually approach them in their language and actually ask their opinion about something. It, it went like wildfire, registering the form to register votes mm-hmm. uh, on the phone. People sent it through their mobile phones. You know, People from China sent it to their relatives who then sent it to their relatives here in Glasgow. It, it was really well supported. We, I know we got a sizable chunk of votes from the Chinese community simply because we asked and because we cared about what they thought. You know, you know the,
2: yeah. The
1: well, so we will pick up votes if we, if we do it right.
2: I see yeah. someone's asking a couple of questions about the EU. It it's interesting. Um, yeah. I, uh, my, my view on this is quite simple. Uh, I never thought being a member of the EU is a bad thing. In fact, I, do, I raised with somebody EU directive 2003 stroke eight, 88 I think it is otherwise known as the working working it. time directive yes so everybody goes on about oh it's it's great for big business and it's about you know well it is it is it uh, does have many advantages for big businesses you know single market uh, removing tariffs removing trade barriers etc um so yes it does however it's also uh, has huge benefits for consumers uh, when it came to air travel with much cheaper uh, uh, roaming costs on mobile phones. You know, the only, the only country that was uh, uh, campaigning against the EU ending the roaming costs? Oh yes, the United Kingdom. The same country that also argued against the working time, time directive, the United Kingdom. We, we never seem to want the social benefits <laughs> to our consumers. Um, and that was because I believe Vodafone is one of the main contributors to the Conservative Party, and they were, they were campaigning not to bring this in because it's very profitable to charge people a £1,000 for some data when you go across Europe and you forgot to switch off your mobile data button. Um, so I just wish people would understand that. And the difference between the guys, the person who's asked um, on whether it should be uh, EFTA or the EU, well, EFTA members still have to pay. Large sums of money to be a member of this single market. They still have to take nearly all the rules, so but they have no say in the rules. So why would you pay, still carry on paying into what is effectively EU, but not have any say in it? Um, so I don't. I don't. I, I think we should be in the EU. I think we should put a positive case forward, and we should campaign on it. And if people vote for it, then the people have had a, a, an input. I think
1: I. I really. Totally I agree a lot more with you than I thought I was going to. Actually, <laughs> um, I would agree with the case you made earlier for us taking up successor s- uh, state status as the member of, of the EU, because uh, we already are in regulatory alignment. We already have access to the market today. We won't have after first of January. But you know, we we are to all intents and purposes the British member state, and we should effectively take their seat. That would be the cleanest way of doing this. I would like to see the government apply for uh, collective uh, citizen rights, because obviously this is a question of the the European Court of Human Rights that usually deals with individual rights. I'm I'm told by various lawyers on both sides of this argument that no, you can't have collective rights as a nation to your treaty rights under the EU, you know, Amsterdam treaty. I think maybe it should be tested in the courts. I would like to see our government go to the European court to test whether the Scottish people have treaty rights, having voted to remain in the European Union. I'd like to see that tested. But in terms of the EFTA thing, if we are outside when we are independent, when we have voted for independence, and we're in a transition period away from the UK uh, and we have the right to join EFTA, I would do it as a holding position, But I would also have a referendum to rejoin the EU if if it proves that we can't
2: just seamlessly rejoin. Uh, I do think we should ask the people. uh, I I have a suggestion, which is why don't we just join the EU, and then in five or 10 years' time, uh, we do a Nigel Farage, and (laughs) we then give the people the opportunity to um, vote us back out again. Sounds like a plan.
0: (laughs) Right. Well, I'd like to I'd like to wrap this up. So I just would want, want each of you to just say something that you'd like to say. Your conclusion from the conference. How do you see everything going forward? Are you more optimistic than
2: pessimistic than you than you have been before? How do How do you see things? I think the conference I think the conference itself is a waste of time, but I think the exercise and I think it, I think it's been very positive. I know that people some people might disagree, but. Um, I think it's been a very positive thing to see so many members get actively involved, take an interest for a start in the, the, the mechanisms of the party, like the NEC, etc., and the office bearers and the different committees. So um, I'm very optimistic that uh, we're now in a better position than we were before, because I did feel that the NEC was malfunctioning before. Um, and I totally I agree with one thing that Graham said and my resolution which I put forward for transparency, specifically detailed, adding in 2.11 into the standing orders for the NEC. And 2.11 was going to give the national secretary the authority to share the minutes, uh, agendas, etc., with branch secretaries. And the reason I wanted to limit it that way was purely because of the concern that if we had radical elements inside our membership, we want to damage our party and leak stuff because uh, I don't see how you can control the documents if you don't have physical control over them. So from that point of view, um, I think it's a very positive position we're in. I just would like to say, my, my last thing I would like to say is I'd like all members to respect each other and tone down the rhetoric and start to work together. And that goes to all the different sides. So I think, that's, I think we're in a better position. I, I hope that what David
1: says transpires, because uh, we are in a very good position as a party. We, we must not mess it up now. Uh, but the truth is that we do have some very divergent opinions now. We did have before. I mean, obviously, I was on the NEC. I'm a revolutionary socialist, so you, you know, can't get more divergent than that. Uh, but, but there's pretty clearly some people who've joined the debate within the party in a way that's not exactly constructive. Uh, I don't, as you say, you didn't sign up to the Women's Pledge. I didn't either, uh, but I am a signed-up supporter of the other side to that because I, I just think the equality thing is just—it's a no-brainer for me as an equality activist. No one can be free until everyone is free, and I think there's been such appalling rhetoric by some of the people who are now on that committee. Now, I hope I can work with them in some way. I, I really hope so, and I hope that we are able to come to a view that we keep our eyes on the prize, which is, you know, that we wanted mm-hmm. because we have to win this election and then we have to get that referendum. So if people keep their eye on that and you know, try and ignore the off stage noises about this person's hard up by that person hard done by. by the way. When I stood uh, as a candidate for Edinburgh Western, I was asked specifically what you know we were all asked quickfire questions uh, by by members from the branch uh, about what we thought about certain things. One of them was, "Do we think Alex should be a member?" And I said yes because I think he should be. That doesn't mean I think he should be returning to the leadership of the party. It doesn't mean I think that uh, his the brilliant leadership that Nicola's given should be undermined. I don't think it means that she should be attacked in the way that she has been, in an appalling way by some people online. Now, obviously, not all of those members, but there's a sort of caucus of people that are putting up this message that somehow our leader is not in favour of independence, which is ridiculous. You know, this, this needs to kind of stop. Now, if there are people on that committee that have that narrative view behind them, they're going to be hard to work with. I hope they don't. Uh, but I, I look forward to a time when we can concentrate on the path we have ahead of us, which is we must win this election, we must consolidate our majority for independence by winning more people to it, and we cannot appear as a divided party. we do that, we will mess it up. There's no doubt that divided parties do not win elections, or at least divided parties could won't win them as convincingly as they otherwise would do. We need to get away from the concentration on the individuals concentrate on the basic thing that we stand for, which is to get out of Westminster. What we're doing is a profoundly radical thing, by the way. That's why it's dangerous. and I don't doubt that there are people and elements in there who designed whose intention is to mess the party up. I I don't doubt that. There are some people in, in the party now who because the party is a legitimate threat now to the British establishment. We are, after all, for the breakup of the United Kingdom imperialist power. You can't get more democratic and radical than that. That's a revolutionary thing to do. It will change international uh, relations forever. It means the United States will not have its junior partners in wars in the Middle East anymore. It's going to change things radically. Of course there are forces trying to stop that. And the way to stop that is to mess up the internal politics of the SNP. So be clear that when we disagree, we're going to do it not disagreeably.
2: So we agree on one, on one core thing, which is we should be respecting each other and engaged in respectful debate. And, let, and I agree, let's stay focused on delivering the goal. That's what's most important. I'm, I'm hopeful that that's what's going to happen.
0: On that note of unity, I will uh, leave you, gentlemen. Thank you so much, and I hope I, I agree with your optimistic vision, and I hope that it is uh, well founded going into the next months. Uh, just one quick thing, uh, do, Graham. Do you have any input on the the manifesto? Do you uh, are you able to contribute some way to the to the way the manifesto is, writ- is written? I have no idea, to be honest. I, I assume that the
1: policy development committee will have something to say about this, because otherwise, what would they be for? I would assume that the NEC will see some kind of draft. But to be honest, I don't know. Uh, there isn't really a, a prescribed written down procedure for this. I would assume, though, that the national assemblies that we have coming, which partly will talk about the you know, the the strategy in January, but clearly uh, there will be a national assembly or a spring conference of some kind, which will put down a, a, a something like a manifesto. I would hope that members get to see that and that as many members, whether they're on the NEC or policy committee, get to see it and get an input on it. In, because I
0: think it's important. Well, that, that'll, that'll be very important to, to see, to gauge to what degree the, the, the grassroots of the party is able to have input on the, on the manifesto itself. So, okay. All right, so on again, on that note, I shall leave you both and uh, thank you so much for for uh, for, uh, for being with us and uh, we'll have you back soon.
1: And then life